0: welcome to another episode of the golders podcast if you haven't already click subscribe and look out for new episodes releasing every other friday we hope everybody also enjoyed our last episode with russell earnshaw before we introduce today's guest we do want to mention our partnership with clothing company capo the meaning behind the brand runs much deeper the North West of England clothing brands strive to provide premium aesthetic fitting and quality clothing at affordable prices. Check out their products at www.capouk.com and on Instagram at uk. Now, for today's guest, here is a snippet of what to expect.
1: In coaching, I talk about, I talk about neither uncomfortable moments or the uncomfortable zone, where you really get to understand who you are as a person and as a player. And when it gets really uncomfortable, how long can you stay in that zone before you make it comfortable? So I started talking about what does that look like in a final, in a semi-final, in a penalty shootout. Yeah, and a really, I use uncomfortability as something that where people can experiment with who they are as people. And I put myself in that situation a lot of the times. Whereas now I don't hide my disability and quite open to talk about it, but you have to be mindful people will judge you no matter whatever you portray the minute you declare that you've got a disability.
0: We're excited to welcome Stephen Daly, MBE, onto today's episode of the podcast. Stephen is the former captain for the England partially sighted national team and is now the para talent manager for the FA. Along with being the England partially cited head coach, Stephen has held numerous coaching roles across a variety of ranges and shares his gold dust with us today. Hiya,
2: Steve. Hiya, Keith. Hiya, David. It's good to have you on the gold dust podcast today.
1: Yeah, thanks for the lovely invite and thanks for hosting me. I'm looking forward
2: to it. It's our pleasure, mate. We always start, Steve, with one question, and that is to us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does dust mean to you? Well,
1: I would say that gold is the prize that everybody seeks to achieve, especially in sport, Keith. Um, gold obviously represents the highest that you can probably get to. Um, and the dust for me is, is how far and wide you can spread uh that value that knowledge that experience to people that people that will that want to touch the gold but maybe probably not sure if they'll ever get there but maybe want to have a little taste of it and then gradually you can expand um how far and wide you can reach really so uh that's probably what it means to me
0: Steve can you Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into coaching.
1: Uh, Yeah, well, I'm an ex player. So I represented England, uh, captain England for about 25 years. Played futsal for for the country. Originally from Belfast, as you can probably tell, David and Keith, and I'm sure that'll probably be another question at some point. But um, yeah, when I finished playing, I, I was doing my coaching badges along my playing journey because I wanted to learn more about the game um, I, I wanted to be a student. I wanted to study as much as I could. I wanted to be around different groups of people and and hear what their view was around the game of football and obviously what their coaching philosophy was. Um, and yeah, when I retired in 2019, uh, I got approached by the FA to uh, to become the, the national head coach of the senior squad. So up to that, I was coaching at academies, I'd coached uh, grassroots football. Um, so, yeah, really just wherever I felt that I could add value was an opportunity for me to, to probably see the game from the other side of the white line, which is, you know, completely different to what it's like when you're actually playing
0: it. Go on then, I'm intrigued. You mentioned Belfast, played for and coached England.
1: Yeah, so... I was born in 1976 in Belfast, born to uh, mixed religion, parents. So mother was Catholic, my father was Protestant. And obviously in the 70s and 80s, it was uh, forbidden really for mixed religion to get married. So, um, yeah, we got petrol bombed out of Belfast in the the early 80s. Uh, As a family, we moved to Antrim Town, which is about 15 miles outside of Belfast. But obviously he still had quite a big family network in and around Belfast. and uh, my mom's a big Roman Catholic family, grew up on the Falls Road. Um, but when you're a young person in Northern Ireland, you sort of follow your father. So my father being Protestant was probably a journey that I, I followed in terms of my education, the football clubs that I played for. Uh, lucky I played for the Glens, Glen Touring, when I was a bit when I was younger. Um for them up to the age of 18 but yeah from about the age of 12 my my parents and my football club started noticing that i was missing certain things on the pitch or in the classroom around what i could see and so really from the age of 12 to 16 i went on a bit of a journey to try and uh, diagnose why i was missing objects like the ball in the air and obviously, around about 17, David got diagnosed with home dystrophy star guards, which means I'm re- really short-sighted. And over time, with age, my, my eyesight, the centre part of my eye deteriorates. So that was a bit of a bombshell because I played schoolboy football for Northern Ireland. Didn't really have an academic uh, qualification when I left school. So being a young 17, 18-year-old in Northern Ireland in the 1980s wasn't wasn't a great place to be if you didn't really have much of a future. Um, And Northern Ireland, being the size that it is, doesn't really offer many things to young people in general. But obviously having a disability then creates another challenge. So I got the opportunity to move to England. Ended up at Loughborough, which I didn't want to go in the first place, but it was the first ever time I entered onto a plane, David, and landed in England, which was just a completely different world to a small country like Northern Ireland so yeah that was a bit of the transition from Northern Ireland to England and then the journey begun from there really.
2: So when you reflect on that illustrious international playing career Steve, what what life skills has football in general taught you?
1: Well I was really lucky. I played under three international managers. So Tony Larkin, Graham Keighley, and Ian Bateman um, were my head coaches at the national level. played under quite a few coaches at club level, but I think international level is different in terms of what it takes to represent England, what it takes to wear the free lions. Obviously dead early, it was all about being physically fit, about you know, working hard, which was easy for me, being from Northern Ireland, a lot of Northern Ireland people, we we love to work hard. So we're quite determined in what we do. So that came naturally in my DNA. But there was all the stuff around the pitch and off the pitch that you soon realise playing for England uh, requires a lot of skills. So dedication, commitment, uh, determination, you've got to be professional in how you're seen away from the pitch. And then I think when it got me a captain, obviously that was additional responsibility around being a leader, setting the example, um, holding the players to account, um, holding myself to account. So yeah, I think over many years it probably is is chiseled me into a lot of what I am now and probably the way my values that I hold are very aligned with what what it means to play for England and represent England at, at the highest level, really.
0: You mentioned the back end of that there about your values. Can you expand on that one?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm really value-driven, David. So for most people that know me, that's how probably a lot of my coaching's done and probably about who I am as a person. So from an early age, uh, my father drilled into us about your family name and what it means to represent your family In everyday life, so every time you leave the front door, uh, you're carrying your family name on your back, and that was just being about how you speak to people, how you look after people that are vulnerable in your community, um, what it means to represent your community, what it means to look after people. So that that was just drilled into me from like the real early age, and then on the back of that, as as I started to get older, um. Other bits started dropping out, Like right? I mean, we're from a working class family. So everything that you got, you had to earn. So like honesty and trust was very much a big thing around my father. So, you, you know, you were told about what you can do, what you can't do, what the line was, about respecting your elders, respecting your school teachers. Um, and then gradually, as I, as I started playing for England, a big thing around integrity and reputation, and what I soon realized is that you don't really get a second chance at a first impression. So every time you have the opportunity to meet people or represent England, um, you better make sure that you give it everything, really, because the minute your reputation goes is the minute people forget who you are and actually maybe question what you're about. So, yeah, probably they're the big ones that stand next to me. And that's probably some of the things, rightly or wrongly, that that I bring the coaching about honesty, about trust, about integrity, about being authentic, who you are, where you're from. Never forget what's taken you to get to there. And then obviously your reputation. So, you know, when you play for England, that's a big one. And I think, um, yeah, they're they're probably the, the real key values, David, that I use in everyday life, even when I work full time, to whether a coach or whether I used to play. And I think they've they've kept me in a good place. And I never forget that. And I never forget where I've come from. That's the other bit I'm quite proud to say that I was born in Northern Ireland and and practically my education around football early was from Northern Ireland. And then obviously making the transition into play for England really was the bit that just put the icing on the cake.
2: I was speaking to a a mutual friend of ours, Ash Higgins, who's the head of coaching at Burnley Football Club during the week. And what you've just shared, there, Steve, in regards to authenticity and trust, and literally living who you are, not being something else. I spoke so fondly of you, and spoke highly of your those values that you've just spoke about. I know you'd mentioned right at the beginning that you do, you know, you play and you coach, but equally. I think there's some hidden qualities in there. And as much as you're also doing quite a bit of mentoring as well, which is probably an undervalued or understated profession, or if it is a profession or whether it be a vocation. So I know you had massive value, not just to people outside of your own existence, but also those that are very friendly with you as well. And well,
1: Keith, a lot of of the people that I meet are usually through sport. So that is the beauty of sport is that you can create a network of people that you respect and that you can learn from and can help develop you. I I tend not to put, I don't like when I start putting labels on uh, different roles. So when people talk about mentoring or coaching or and maybe it's for other people to recognise what what someone's role is, but for me, I always look at it as how do I help make someone better than what they were the day before? So just having a coffee with someone, if you can share some knowledge, some experience, um, some connection, I think ultimately people will leave there knowing something that they didn't know the day before. So I just I am a people person. I love being around people. I love seeing people have the opportunity to progress. I love seeing people develop. And I think there's no greater recognition for me if someone mentions your name and that you've played a small part in their development. So I always take pride when I'm coaching at the senior level, not so much with the senior players, because I played with a lot of them, so they'll know me as a player. But what I take pride in is when I see some young players maybe trying to find their way in the game or trying to find what their key strengths are but you will have such an impact on their career moving forward or the way they think or um the way they'll behave and only they'll never forget that you know so i've had the pleasure of giving six people a debut for england and i remember when tony larkin gave me mine so you know, you will always remember that and you'll always remember the impact you have on people. And if you can have an impact, I think that's the greatest the greatest thing in life for me. People measure success in gold, medals, trophies. But for me, it's have you played a part in someone else's journey and help them to get to where they want to get to because they'll never forget that and then they'll pass it on to someone else. I think that's important.
0: Well, there's the... Uh... Obviously, famous quote that I think has come to the forefront over the past few years, the Maya Angelou one. And people will never forget what you said or what you did. Or people may forget what you said and what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And that's something there that you've just touched on quite extensively around you remember how you felt when you got your debut and, and then talked quite a bit around... Wanting to have an impact on other people and pass those feelings on. Yeah, ma- massive, David,
1: and and and, and la- let's have it right as well. There is the danger that in sport, there's often the negative side where people can have a, a bad impact on people's view of sport, and and I've also experienced that. So, and I'm sure other young people or young people with disability have experienced some real negativity around being included, being part of sport, trying to be part of a team. Um, and I think sports still has that, but I think it's less. I think now the majority of people that are in the round really are in it for for good reasons and for the right reasons. And I think it's about just finding those people that you can connect with. I think connections for me are massive. And, and I know Keith mentioned ice ice is a great, great friend and a great um, person to me as much as I am to him. Um, but I think you've, you've got to find that initial connection where you can build a really good foundation of of what type of relationship you want to have with people. But if it works, it's magical. And it goes back to your original question, what's gold dust? For me, that's probably gold dust is what key relationships will you create in your journey around the networks that you've got. And I think when you find that, that's gold dust for me.
0: Just gonna go back into part of what you said in that last answer, you mentioned a little bit about you can have negative experiences as a player and having to to overcome them or having them help shape you. As a partially sighted footballer, what challenges did you face and how did you overcome them?
1: Well, I mean, early on, being a young teenager is is a challenge. And I know for all young teenagers it's hard to find where you belong in life, leaving school, entering the real world. Um, so suddenly having a disability was even harder. David, my kids joke with me now. Like I never got to read a book at school because I just couldn't be included in class. I went to a mainstream school. I felt that's where I could compete. Um I love the people that were around me at mainstream but the flip side was the school was never set up to help someone in the 1980s with a disability at a mainstream environment and even now it still is challenging even though technology has made that far easier so yeah academically that was a real challenge but that was one that I needed to overcome if I was ever going to progress in life so one I knew that I was never going to become a footballer so now what what could the world offer me to do that? You need to have an education, whether that's a, a BTEC, a HMD, a degree. So, yeah, I forced myself to go back to university. Again, one of the few people in the 1990s with a disability to go to university to get a degree. Um, but my, my wife, Sonia, now then really helped convince me that that was achievable, which I didn't think it would be. Um So that was a real challenge. Then being accepted into mainstream football clubs. So again, linked to my values, trust and honesty, was I would always declare it. But what I soon realized was the minute you declare it, people make a perception or have a bias of what you're capable of rather than seeing what your potential is. So I knew there was a couple of clubs when I signed for them in England, the minute I told them I had a, a visual impairment, It was funny that I wasn't getting selected in the team. So when I made a transition to Preston and I signed for a club in Preston, I never declared it. I actually hid it. So suddenly I start finding that you're hiding your impairment. You're hiding who you are as a person, but that's because you, you, you want people to see what you're capable of. So I ended up playing for a club in Preston called Art Rights and we ended up winning... 14 trophies over 11 years. We were the most successful amateur league club at um, 11 aside football. It was only after the first season I informed people that I was Parsi sided, which they didn't believe me to begin with because then they could they knew I could play. And then after that, you, you sort of got a reputation within football. People knew about this kid that was Parsi sided, that was playing 11 aside, that was playing mainstream futsal but it took me about a year or two years to figure out you've got to be careful who you declare it to because the minute you declare it, people will already judge you. And then probably the hardest one for me was when I started my coaching badges and I went on my UEFA B. Again, I declared it at the beginning and I did it uh, through the PFA, but I knew straight away, David, when it turned up on day one. And in fact, the week leading into the course, I was already getting emails and phone calls of people trying to conv- convince me not to do the course because they didn't think I would cope doing my UEFA b um, And I remember going on day one with all the ex-players and really made to feel uncomfortable. Um, so much so that that night I said to my wife, I'm not going back. But she was the one that convinced me to say, if you don't go back now, You'll never open the door for the next group of people to come through. So I forced myself to do it. And it was when the UEFA B had changed. And lo and behold, a year later, I achieved my UEFA B. And then everybody else believed they could do it. I call it the Roger Bannister effect, the four-minute mile. No one knew they could break the four-minute mile until someone did it. And obviously, in my case, it was no one could get the UEFA B who was partially sided because no one else had done it and that just stuck with me that actually sometimes you've got to be a pioneer and you you've got to take the brunt of what's in front of you but it allows everybody else to come behind um and that was a real that that was an uncomfortable situation so much so david in coaching i talked about i talked about now about uncomfortable moments or the uncomfortable zone where you really get to understand who you are as a person and as a player and when it gets really uncomfortable, how long can you stay in that zone before you make it comfortable? So I started talking about what does that look like in a final, in a semi-final, in a penalty shootout. Yeah, and I really, I use uncomfortability is something that where people can experiment with who they are as people. And I put myself in that situation a lot of the times. Whereas now I, I don't hide my disability and quite open to talk about it, but. You have to be mindful, people will judge you no matter whatever you portray the minute you declare that you've got a disability.
2: I love it where you've actually listened to your good lady wife uh, without their advice and being resilient. You may not have become who you are now and such a strong character. In In addition to that, living with and i'm i'm i suspect steve life's been like it is across mainstream where it's chaos sharing your your disability and being mindful who you share it with there must be a real strong mental robustness around you to be able to cope with most of that type of stuff anyway but i've got a question in regards to the impact that your life in coaching what what significance that's had on you. But can you share any insights or experiences that you've gained from being a coach that have had a, a massive impact on your life?
1: Well, resilience is massive, Keith. I do think that the more we make young people resilient within the game, then they can cope. I always say young people with disability are really resilient because they have to be in everyday life. So even travelling on public transport, trying to get a job, um, young people with disability really need to become resilient pretty quick. Um, And that's one thing that we try and do with the players. Um, Probably the biggest bit for me is about relationships. So it's really about, so whilst I'm talking there about perceptions and bias, I've got to be aware of my own and actually what I think other players are going to bring To a group or a team of people. So, to do that, you've really got to understand what it's like to be an effective communicator. So, not just speaking to people, but being able to listen to them. I'm really keen on, I mentioned this earlier about connections and about understanding people's journeys, understanding people's stories. So, behind every person, there's an interesting story. But sometimes when we look at them as just players, we never really get a good understanding of the challenges they've had in life about who they are as people. Because only for me, being a footballer is just someone with skill that can play the game. But actually, if you know the person and develop the person, then the person will shine on a football pitch as they would in an office, as they would in a different environment. Football is just one environment. So... Yeah, I just I'm really keen to learn about people, about the journey they've been on. And I think the more I learn about that, Keith, then it influences me and it makes me realise what support they need. That's ultimately going to develop them as people. And I think ultimately, if they do something really good in football, then that's great. But if they do something in life as a person, I think that's greater. And I think, you know, they will have a bigger impact on society if we develop them as people then rather than just as footballers. And I think that's one area that I'm really keen. How do we have a bigger impact on them in the wider world than just in a pitch or in a football tournament or in a World Cup? Because, you know, to win a tournament, you need a lot of luck. But to make them better people, that takes time and effort. And if we give up on people too early, then suddenly we're letting them down and they don't feel like they're part of society or they don't feel like they can go on and, and achieve more than what what they think that they actually can. You
0: just mentioned in the about World Cups um and taking an amount of luck to get that, which I wouldn't disagree with. I think the rest of it is so true in terms of the time and the effort and probably persistence and resilience to help build high character people but in terms of from a world cup standpoint can you talk about those experiences um the impacts that they had on you
1: yeah i mean listen there's no greater there's no greater feeling to represent your country at any sport but to do it in football david and to do it in a european championships or world cup was just something that dreams are made of. I was really lucky. I played in nine World Cups and nine European Cups. Managed to get to two World Cup finals in 2017 and 2019 as a captain, which you know no one will ever take away from you. Um and probably that is the biggest moment in anybody's life as a player to do it. So yeah, that was just it took me 21 years to get to a final with England because we had to learn this game futsal. But to do it with people that you've played with for a number of years is phenomenal. The motto I use is the right people in the right places at the right time. You know, I've played with a lot of great players, but it doesn't mean it was at the right time or in the right place. And I think to get to a final, those three ingredients have got to be in place to make it happen. And then the icing is a little bit of luck on top. So we were really lucky in 2017. We beat Rocha for the first time for free to get to a final. Um, in 2019, we got through uh by one goal to get to a, a final. And then, and I will say this, I'm the only England player that's played in a World Cup final, but also coached in the World Cup final. So in 2023, in August this year, we took the partials to the World Cup final again. Uh. We did it on a penalty shootout against Japan where we were one penalty away from going out and we ended up winning it. Uh, And obviously, on all three occasions, David, we lost to Ukraine, who are world and European champions. But this time, we took them to extra time uh, and they scored the winning goal with 22 seconds on the clock. So, yeah, just a phenomenal experience. It's just taken me... Uh, Time to reflect on that. There's a documentary coming out in January, which follows our journey to the World Cup final, which BT Sport are going to air at the end of January, which will be a great insight about what it's like to work with a national team, what it was like on the journey. And, the, and it is a, a roller coaster. So many highs, so many lows. But it's about how you manage that and how you manage the players uh, and yourself because ultimately you're the one that's got to make the decisions and not all the decisions everybody will agree with or everybody will like. And and it's easy to be a pundit, but when you're in the firing line, um, yeah, you've got to be brave in terms of selection, what you're going to do and decision-making at the time, which is completely different to being a player. Being a player, you just put on the shirt, go do your best, and try and win the game. But as a coach, you're managing the whole environment, all the staff, all the players, again, to go back to right people, right place, right time. If that falls in order, you've got a chance. And if it doesn't, don't be surprised if if you're unsuccessful.
2: Well, Steve, you captained England, longest serving captain, I'm led to believe. How many years did you captain the country for?
1: Uh, 25 years, player captain, and uh, yeah, played 150 games for England.
2: So I think you're definitely well positioned to provide advice to young players with visual impairment who also aspire to want to play at the high level. What advice would you give someone who's in the wilderness wanting to get involved in the game now?
1: Um, well, I think the big bit for me, Keith, was I love the game even when it got hard or when I had negative experiences, I still love the game of football. I love watching the game. I love playing the game. Uh, I love being around people that enjoy the game. So that's the biggest bit for me, is you've got to have a love and a passion for the sport that you play. Um, You do have to be resilient and you do have to be prepared to work hard. And I know that's easy, but it's funny, even when I train now, Keith, I always talk about if it was easy, everybody would do it, but it's not. And that's why only a few people ever do it or ever make it. And then I think the longevity bit comes from uh, never being afraid to keep learning. So I probably reinvented myself over those years, probably about five or six times. So when you're young and when you've got your key strengths, whether it be speed, skill, um, strength, Gradually, over time, that that disappears and other players get faster, other players get stronger, more skips. So for me, I constantly had to reinvent who I was as a player and I had to realise where I fit in the team, where some people, I think, in the game just see themselves and don't see how that connects to other people because you can only win a World Cup and a European Cup in football with your teammates. So if the connection's not there and it's disjointed, then, then it's you. you're not gonna get the success. Um, so I'm always keen to learn, and I say this to young people, you know, learn learn along the way, but be confident in who you are. I talk a lot now about not hiding who you are, or don't hide your disability, because actually your disability can be your greatest strength, but it also can be your greatest area for development. And I think the two are very aligned. Your strengths and your areas of development are so closely intertwined. And it's about until you know what they are, you can't improve them. So you've got to figure out who you are as a person and what that looks like on the football pitch or on the futsal court. So, yeah, they're probably my main advice around young people. And and never give up. You know, even when it does get hard or it does get uncomfortable, It's the people that then make it comfortable or the players that will come through. If you constantly find that it's really uncomfortable and you can never break the cycle or make it more comfortable, don't be surprised that you won't progress in the game. But that's okay. And it's okay to know that what your limit is or what your target is. Not everybody can play for England, Keith, but everybody can play football. And I think that's the difference. The game should be accessible but it just depends on what level you can get to. And that'll be based on who you are and how far you're
2: willing to go. So you mentioned reinventing, you know, their adaptation to adjust to the environment. At what point of your career did you realise that you needed to, if you like, in your words, reinvent? Because that in itself is a skill. You know, we get transfixed in the way that we feel everybody else should adjust to us. You've done the opposite. You're actually recognising that something needs to change and change quickly, otherwise you lose your position. You're no longer representing England. At at what points did you recognise that? Well, Keith, I'm my biggest critic, (laughs) so... um... After every tournament,
1: when we didn't get success, I started looking at myself before judging other people and questioning, am I good enough? Am I fit enough? Am I playing enough? So it was really easy from a playing perspective that you can do that after a tournament. And I think that's when a lot of players either realise it's time to retire, it's time to maybe accept that I'm going to sit on the bench, it's time to realise that I'm not as good as maybe someone else that's coming through. So there was plenty of times where I maybe was critical about me. Um, And I think then that either drives you forward or that pulls you back. There's two ways that can go. And I used it as a real positive in that I wanted to be better. So what did I learn from the games? What did I learn from the tournaments? And I think that was easy. I think age, Keith, is is a natural observation. So what you what you can do in your 20s, you maybe can't do in your 30s. What you can do in your early 30s, you can't do in your later 30s, but you know the game really well. So your mind becomes a better tool than your body. So it's about managing your body, but knowing what your head can do. So there has to be a real connection between the thought process and what you're physically capable of doing. I think you have to play under great coaches and good managers that know you as a person and you can have real honest conversations because, you know, coaches may tell you what you want to hear, but it doesn't mean it's right for you. So I think if you've got that relationship where you can have that honesty, then you can have real dialogue about what you need to do to remain as an England player. And in the last bit, when I became the coach of the England squad, my my vision for the players was demand more from yourself before you demand more from others. Because I think as a player, players are easy can point the finger at other players, but that's just a distraction or a deflection from their own areas of improvement. So my first real point was, before you point the finger at someone else, you need to be telling me what you're doing about yourself. And actually, if you're telling me you're already perfect, I want to see it. And let's be honest, everybody seeks perfection, but none of us ever get there. That's what I used to say to the lads. We're probably 90% there, 95%, but we're trying to find the final 10 or 5% that makes us perfect. Whether we ever get there, we'll never know. So that was sort of what I did from my beginning was I, I demanded more from me. I, I made sure I was the best before I looked at anybody else.
0: Moving on from that slightly, what role do you believe football can play in empowering individuals with disabilities and and promoting inclusivity?
1: Well, sport in general, I think, David, even though it's hard to prove, I think sport in general has such an impact on society. You know, it's clear when our national teams, the Olympics, when we host major events, the power of what sport makes us all feel, makes us feel great, makes us feel proud. Um makes us come together so i think that's what's great about uh, being british about playing sport at the highest level and um, and if we get it right david it can work i think we're great at trying to find solutions as people so yes there is a challenge there may be a barrier but really good people and good coaches can find ways of getting around that to make people feel that there's a place they belong. So I think if sport can do that, then that can have a wider impact on on society, on community. So if we want people to feel a belonging, if we want people to feel like they add value to everyday life, then I think sport can be the catalyst to do that. Because the minute you're part of that wider team, is the minute you can start building confidence that actually you can go and play a bigger part in everyday life. So even stuff like getting employment, getting a job, uh, not relying on benefits, I think that has a knock-on effect on how a person can feel. And I think if someone's in and around a sports environment and it's done the right way and people do feel belonging, because that's what inclusion is for me, is about belonging to a greater good than just yourself then I think it it'll only benefit the person which then people will benefit from what they bring to the party
2: you're obviously a developer you know you're you're inspirational I've been around you in the past spent a bit of time with you and this is who you are there's no there's no idea in that there is an authentic you you're constantly driving for high standards but what's your current role what do you do for a living
1: uh, yeah Keith. so up to two years ago i worked for preston city council for 20 years so again one of my big values is loyalty and dedication and, and trying to see a project or a, a role to the end so i did 20 years at local government which was brilliant while i was playing football and raising a young family because you've got to strike the balance, because if one's out of, out of keel, that has a knock-on effect on you as a player, on you as a husband, as a dad, as an employee. So Preston City Council were fantastic to me, Keith, and I ended up becoming a head of service there, which, again, was unheard of for someone with a disability. And then, yeah, about 18 months ago, the FAA had a restructure around the, the PARA programme which is around our sort of pathway, talent pathway, and national squads. And I was made the para talent manager. So my role there at the FA is to support young players from talent ID, so from the ages seven and eight, work their way through the talent system so hopefully one day they get to represent England for one of our seven para squads. Um, And then, yeah, work under James Watkins, the technical lead, So my job is to support young players transitioning from like development squads, 21s, into senior squads. Hopefully England can go on and win uh, major tournaments, World and European Cups. So yeah, I've got a small team, three people, Liam Drake, Rob Seal, Will Perkins, and four of us really try to help young people develop, male and female. And uh, so hopefully one day represent their country, but if not, be the best that they can be and play at the highest level that they can play and actually just bring them confidence that they can go on to do bigger and better, whether it's in football or whether it's outside the football game. So it's been a great 18 months. It's been a bit of a whirlwind. Um, and alongside that, obviously, I, I was the head coach with the party sided squad, which is one of the the seven England teams.
0: So, Steve, in terms of that, you've just talked about what your role is now. What are are you doing to further support and promote blind and and the partially sighted football?
1: Yeah, David, so because my role goes right across all impairments, um, we're doing a lot with the FA, which I have to say the FA are brilliant in terms of promotion, marketing. You only have to look at the women's game, the men's game. And obviously the para game and the profile that we're giving uh, all our England players. Um, But yeah, we're just trying to connect with networks, David, doing stuff like this where we get on podcasts and we talk about opportunities for players with an impairment that maybe one day could represent their country and really just trying to raise the profile that actually it's, it's okay not to hide your disability. It's okay to be who you are. And actually, we want you to be proud of who you are. And actually, if you do have it, there's an opportunity there that you might be able to get involved in football at a higher level. Uh, We run talent days, probably about uh, 10 of them nationally, David, all year during the football season. And then, if you get selected at one of them talent days, you can work your way to play at regional, national, into development squads, and then hopefully one day on to play for England. So this year, we had round about eighteen players progress from our development squads to represent England at a major tournament this year, which is fantastic for me and the, the team to know that we're having an impact there on eighteen players now that made their senior debut at a major tournament. And hopefully that'll continue, David, if we get it right. Um and develop them in the right way.
2: Obviously influencing players and staff, and influencing with integrity. You know, that's the, that's the software stuff. What do you use, Steve, if anything? Or what role do you see technology playing? And what advancements have you seen since you first started playing that can actually help enhance both coaching and equally the players?
1: Well, if it's a scary world, if you look up AI, um, artificial intelligence and the internet, you know, really young people are very intelligent people now and actually can do a lot of research and probably know a lot of the answers already. So, you know, big thing for us in, in para football is communication. So how does technology help us communicate better with the players? Because we we, we only have the players for a short period of time on camps but actually it's what can we do off the camps that will improve them as people and players. So if you think working with deaf players and the use of tablets and the use of BSL, because BSL for a lot of our deaf players is their uh, first language. Uh, For blind players, again, a lot of that, they rely on speech. So technology is really advanced, how young people can be more inclusive and that's probably evident in what they're doing in mainstream education, Keith. So, you know, if you think going back, it's only in the last 20 to 25 years, we used to have special schools, but there's very few special schools that still exist. And that is one of the challenges that whilst we want all our kids to be in a mainstream environment, the hardest bit now is finding them because it, it it's harder now to engage with schools to identify who those young people are. Um, but technology can can really help them in their career, in employment. You know, transport is a lot easier because you know how often it runs, when it runs, and you can track everything now. We track players based on polar flow, training regimes, um, analysis. You know, if you look at analysis now, I mean, it's coaching within itself, Keith. And being someone that's in an analysis can have such an influence on how we play, how we set the players up to play, but provide the evidence that it makes it. That's the reason we're doing what we're doing. So technology is probably only going to go one way, Keith. And I think it's a person. I think you've got to embrace it. You've got to see how it can benefit you, either as a coach, as a developer, um, or as someone that works in in a in sport because that is probably the one bit that sport does probably better than anybody else. It really looks at what are the next trends, what are the next advances and how can that benefit is to close the margins to win gold or to win a trophy. Um, And I think sport do that brilliantly.
0: Moving on from that or bolting on from it, how do you stay up to date with the latest trends and, and developments in sport? And how do you use the information? to help improve your set your own performance? I always remember
1: um, a model, David, I don't know if you ever come across it, it was called 70 20 So it was like 70%, you're in around other people. 20%, you're probably doing a course. And 10%, you're probably learning somewhere else. So big part of me is the networks that I operate in. So who do I engage with on a regular basis? There's so many advancements within the FA. You know, I do think the English FA were leading in what they're trying to do and how they're trying to support our men, women, and para not just win a tournament, but be sustainable in going on and winning. And um, clearly, coach education and formal qualifications is an obvious one and we're at even now in some of the courses I've done I've gone back and done additional modules around that and then probably just learning from players and being around people being around young people because you know even my two kids David teach me stuff all the time on on my phone on my tablets on the computer and I think if you don't stay ahead suddenly before you know it um, you do fall behind so I think going back to my early days as a player and going back to my early days when I struggled at school, education is vital if you're going to stay ahead or if you're going to progress in life. And I think rather than when I was younger, I used to do courses to get a qualification where actually I do now a course to learn. And that sounds weird, doesn't it? A lot of people think, well, surely that's why you go on course courses to learn. but. I think when you're young, it was more about, oh, I just want to get the qualification. So it goes on my CV it was actually because I'm quite content in my career. I actually go on a course because I want to learn. And I'm more interested that if it's something that I'm going to benefit from, I really buy into it. And I think when you get a bit older and Keith, you'll know this. When you get a bit older, you you're quite astute and you're quite, if you think it's going to help you, you'll buy into it. If you don't, you'll push it to one side. So I think I'm quite clear in probably what my skill set is, what my strengths are and what my areas of development are. And I'm not really that bothered, David, about at my age trying to waste a lot of time on, well, can I do better at that when I know this is what I'm really good at?
2: Someone listening to this podcast, Steve, may actually have an impairment uh, or a disability of some kind. What are the benefits of actually not hiding your impairment? Well,
1: I think, one, you've got to be true to yourself. And I think, until and it's funny when I speak to a lot of parents and being a parent myself, we want to protect our children and we want to wrap them up and we want to make sure the outside world doesn't have an impact on them negatively. But it's a bit of the opposite, Keith, where until the young person embraces their disability, It's going to be hard for other people to support them. So, you know, I really try and get young people to open up and talk about some of the challenges they face. And really, with every challenge, there's more than one solution on how we overcome it. It's going back to that uncomfortable zone, you've got to be uncomfortable to suddenly to become comfortable with it. So I think we have to embrace it. That was something that I fought with for many years. It was something that I hid from my wife, from uh, my friends, from my football colleagues. But I think the more you hide it, the more you're not true to who you really are and actually how people can help you. But then it's about how you do it in the right way. So how do you communicate it? How do you feel comfortable in the environment? And probably just for a wider society to know uh, how can they be more accepting or rather than just jumping to conclusion of, yeah, this is what they might need or uh, I'm going to avoid it. I talk about the fear factor, Keith. Don't walk the other way. There's no stupid question. Let's have the conversation about disability and, and what impact it has on people. But a lot of people don't want to ask the question because they're scared of making a mistake or saying the wrong thing or offending someone. I would rather someone ask me and we had this conversation, Keith, like me, you and David today, because I think when you have good conversation, you break down a lot of myths, a lot of perceptions, a lot of bias. And then people like myself, we can feel relaxed that actually it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to say this is what we need. It's okay to say if you did it that way, that would make us feel more included. So yeah, I'm really, I'm really keen for young people to embrace who they are. Um, um, and go back to that bit your disability can be your greatest strength don't see it as your greatest negative and i think a lot of young people they're, they're they're brought up to feel like it's a barrier but actually it could be the quickest way you get to play for your country or go to the paralympics or you know be whatever you want to be so i think it Let's have a conversation about it and let's educate people to make awareness of
0: of what people can do to help include people in everyday life. There's one thing that we haven't talked about on here. We've not it's not been mentioned yet. You are an MBE. How did that come about? Yeah. What what was that process like? Uh I don't talk about it, David. Uh I don't
1: yeah, I find that's probably an area that um, I'm quite well, one I'm humble. I'm grateful. Um, being a young lad from Belfast that grew up in the Troubles, I'm not even sure did I ever think of playing international football, never mind progressing and being um, rewarded with an MBE. For me, the MBE is for everybody else, for all the people that helped me on the journey. Um, when I retired, um, my local MP, my wife, and a few, a lot of people at the council and the FA, probably recognized not just what I did playing for my country, but what I was doing within the game. So Keith talked about Ash Higgins, really close friend that got me into boys academies to coach there. So again being the first person with disability, coaching at a, a pro game academy at Preston and then at Burnley. Um I was doing a lot in grassroots football, helping a lot of clubs. So I think the thing when MBA isn't just about what you do as an England player, but it's about all the other stuff that people don't see and about the time that you give up to help other people. But you do that because you want to do it. I don't do it because it, it was where it was going to get me. Um, I'm quite shy about it. It's not something that I feel comfortable talking about, so the uncomfortable zone. Um, but, that, but I do think it, it's to recognise people like my wife my coaches, the FAA, yeah, for all the support that they've given me, I think it's more of a recognition for them, David. So I had the honor of getting it presented by Prince William, president of the FA, which was fantastic. It happened during COVID, which was different. Um, we're in a face mask to go to Buckingham Palace. Oh, sorry, we went to Windsor Castle where I got it. So yeah, that was given to me in 2020 and luckily, it was signed off by uh, Prince Philip and the Queen. And again, you know, in history, how many more people will ever have your MBE signed off by the Queen, Prince Philip, and then it was awarded to me by Prince William. So, yeah, real pride day. Probably one of the biggest days for me as a person, from my family. And like I say, being a young person from Belfast, it's not something that I ever set out to achieve, really.
2: David speaks volumes of you as a person to be identified, if you like, as a, and you may not, it may not be the right word for you, but you're extremely passionate, but a pathfinder, you've set standards and lived by those standards, not just spoke about them, but you lived them for over two decades of playing for your country and captaining your country for so long. So, well, i've got to thank you for just being such a wonderful guest
1: well keith can i thank you and david and probably keith me and you go back many years and similar to you i think you your passion um your expertise your friendliness around the game uh, people that come into contact with you keith very similar in in the words that you've used for me and it's been my pleasure giving up a little bit of time to well have a conversation with you keith which i do many of the time but also to meet david uh your son who you have the opportunity to obviously share your networks and uh, raise the profile for what we're trying to do um my job's easy keith i think i've got an easy job and really it's it, credit to people like you and David that help us get the message out there that will hopefully inspire other young people to maybe realise that if their dream is to play for England and just because they've got an impairment, that should not stop them. And actually, if anything, it should drive them forward. So, you know, I'm really grateful for you giving up your time um, and for the two of you to really show the same level of passion for the game of football which we all love in this country so uh you know i give up any time keith so all you got to do is pick up the phone but it's probably more inspirational people out there that'll be banging on your door than me
2: uh, yeah i'm not too sure about that mate. but thank you for your kind words steve if anyone wanted to contact you in relation to the partially sighted or paris how can you become contactable Yeah, Keith, so
1: if anybody goes on the FA, which is the national FA, um, or through their local county FA, if they go on their website, there'll be a whole section on para football, or there'll be a section around disability grassroots football. So a close colleague of mine, Phil Heap, who is really driving inclusion at the grassroots level, um, really We We would love to try and get you into the game or find out what level you're playing at. And uh, we've got some trials coming up in 2024. So for deaf men, CP men, salvo palsy, uh, it's St George's Park, we'll be running open trials for young players 16 plus. And then from February onwards, we'll run a, a number of England talent days right across the country. So again, reach out to your local county FA or have a look on the FA website. And on there, there'll be some details that will tell you how you can contact this, maybe your nearest event. Once we get you involved in the system, we'll look to give you some feedback, look to get an IDP um, and set you on your journey, whether that's in grassroots football or whether that's into the talent system, Keith. so that's the best way to do it.
0: Thanks for tuning in to The Goldust Podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com